Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, really happy to be here. Got a lot of stuff. Well, we got a wonderful interview uh, with probably, I don't know, maybe our biggest guest yet. Russell Brand's pretty big. I mean, there's a big others who were bigger politically. No yeah. Kalki, Cornell no. West. But, you yeah. know, this is big in terms of, like, raw numbers and popularity, celebrity, whatever you want to call it. For sure. Know? Definitely, yeah, crosses a lot of different uh, mediums and sort of cultural and political and YouTube and film and all these different things. So very excited to talk to him. He's a fascinating person. Yes. Uh, but before we do that, let's talk about a big old swollen ball sack. <laughs> so um, Nicki Minaj went on Twitter the other day. I'm, everybody knows this story now because it's the biggest thing online. But Nicki Minaj <laughs> went on Twitter the other day and said something along the lines. Of, I don't have the, the tweet uh, queued up in front of me, but I'll give you the gist of it. The gist of it was, um, hey, Make your own decision and don't be bullied into getting the vaccine. Because I just heard from my cousin in Trinidad that his friend got the vaccine, got a big old swollen ball sack, and is impotent. And he was supposed to get married, and now that woman left him because of his big old swollen, impotent balls. <laughs> and so everybody, like, we were all sitting there. I remember when I was talking, I was like, I had to do a double take. I was like... Nikki, what? This is one where we check to make sure, like, is this real? Yeah, like, this is a parody account or some shit. I was like, <laughs> what? What are you talking about? And then, of course, instantly politicized like that. So Tucker Carlson goes out on his show, and he's like, here's somebody who's not a slave on the Democratic plantation. And she's thinking for herself. And she wants you to know, careful of the vaccine, might get some big old swollen balls. <laughs> She's just asking questions. That's all she's doing. She's just she's Seems just reasonable. I think he said she's just telling her, you know, <laughs> she's just telling her personal story. Who are you to judge about that? So he does that, which actually I think was maybe we'll have a disagreement on this. I actually think that was savvy politically. Yes, very. Because, savvy yes, because politically. that's in the same way that like, you know, sort of TPUSA aligned with Kanye to be like, we're hip. We're with it. Tuck, 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 tuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the sort of thing that Tucker was doing, like. Look, a black female rapper who's really cool who I happen to be defending right now. Should I get an even younger audience to believe all my bullshit? <laughs> That's sort of the sense I got from Tucker. Yeah. You know? Yes. And he ultimately baited people into the second part of the dynamic, which is then, do you want to set this up, a uh, Hassan well, part? Well, yeah. So uh, what happens is Nikki tweets uh, a short clip from Tucker Carlson's show when he was given like a monologue and it's semi-defending her mm -hmm. and she tweets that video clip with a little bullseye emoji right. to be like, this guy gets it. Right. And so Hassan Piker jumps in in the replies and basically says like, do you know that this guy's a white nationalist? And so then Nikki fires back and says, this is actually, I'm going to give you verbatim what it you says. Got it. Right. I can't speak to, agree with, or even look at someone from a particular political party. By the way, white nationalist is not a political party. People aren't human anymore. If you're black and a Democrat tells you to shove marbles up your ass, you simply have to. If another party tells you to look out for the bus, uh, stand there and get hit. So, you know, that's her being like, don't make this partisan, um, you know, what is that even relevant to the conversation that we're having? Uh, believe it or not, I might surprise people here. I half agree with Nikki in this sense that, like, 
yeah, the fact even if he even if Tucker is a white nationalist, that is not relevant to the conversation about vaccination. Right. Like Hitler could say, I like dogs. That doesn't mean like if somebody says I like dogs, you could say like, did you know Hitler liked dogs? Like that's just not relevant to the conversation. Right. And it's like this instinct on the left always to say, like, if you associate yourself with one thing that a person says, that automatically right. means so now you're that buying you're in wholesale. Sanctioning wholesale, whatever their ideology is and whatever they're selling on a daily basis. Correct. So, but now before I d- yeah. don't get a twist. Now comes my massive disagreement with Nikki, which is the the more important part, which is this. And this is my advice for everybody. I don't care who you are. For the love of God, stop taking anecdotes and forming your entire worldview solely based off anecdotes. So, by the way, the health minister from Trinidad, they didn't comment on this for like a day and a half or two days. And then they call a press conference. Homeboy goes out there and he's like, just so everybody understands, the story's not true. We went around, we were asking people, anybody have some swollen ass balls here? And nobody had some swollen ass balls. So Nikki, like you sort of got got. press conference of like, Nikki is wasting our time, but we went and we checked and there are no reports of swollen balls. And Sagar told me this, I'll have to double check it, but they don't use the same vaccine. They're not doing Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson Johnson. I think they're using the Chinese one, Sino, whatever. So even there are no swollen balls, even if there were swollen balls. Um, as a vaccine side right. effect, mm-hmm. it's a different vaccine. Yeah. So every level, but your point is, I, I think actually a really important one. And it's the only point, you know what I mean? Right. And the fact that it gets turned into this whole like silly theatrical situation, Joy Reid was all in on like, Nikki's terrible and Tucker's and immediately like dragging Joy oh, Reid like nobody's that one, business. You can't even read the tweet because there's all kinds of slurs, et cetera. In she there. called but her, her old Uncle homophobic. Tamiana. Her, I was like, and that <laughs> damn son. Wasn't even the worst thing she called her in that tweet. I probably didn't even see all by the, the tweets way. then. But the old homophobic blog post and the hackers yes. came up. Well, and that, also, I sort of respect that she brought that up because just fuck Joy Reid. Well, anyway, go on. Also, it's not relevant to the conversation, but I just, she needs to get her comeuppance for that. Is that the word I'm on? Comeuppance? Yes, that is the word. Um, also, she brought up an old tweet from Joyce during the Trump administration where she was like, who could ever trust the FDA again, even if Biden gets elected, because this has all been such right. a mess. Well, I'm sorry. I, I don't know how well you know her. So don't say anything here. I'll be the one to talk. Okay. But yeah, Joy Reid's a fucking hack. Obviously. Obviously. But on the flip side, Nikki, you don't know what you're talking about. Like you need you need to understand that you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm not saying that as a personal attack. I'm just saying, like, when you've amassed a quadrillion followers, don't go out there and say some medical shit based on Dickie (laughs) McGee's acts. Like you don't know what you're talking about. So, by the way, to my original point, which is everybody falls for this. It's not just Nicki Minaj. I don't want to just pick on Nicki Minaj. Everybody does this thing where it's like. I have a friend who has a friend whose nuts fell out of his eye socket because he took <laughs> fucking penicillin. And it's like, first of all, no. Second of all, even if you did, I don't care about I don't care about your anecdote. It doesn't mean anything to me. I care about the data because the data is what? A collection of all of the anecdotes. That's what the data is. Tell right. me what all the anecdotes say. So just to, on the vaccine thing, we just got the, these numbers from Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, this is interesting. So get this. Uh, in Pennsylvania... Unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated people have so far accounted for 97% of the deaths, 95% of the hospitalizations, and 94% of the cases. I don't care about your swollen ball sack, bro. I care about this. 
I care about what the data says. And so, yes, she is sort of feeding into vaccine hesitancy, which is wildly irresponsible. But what you see here is this is what happens with human nature, too, is like and maybe there's a lesson here about shaming and how it doesn't really work, Mm -hmm. because the second Nikki felt like there was pushback that she viewed as unfair. Yeah. She was like, I will run into the arms of Fox News and Tucker Carlson gladly. That is actually a really important political lesson. And that's. I mean, that's a silly response. Totally right? silly. Just like she has was, agency. She's an adult. Right. And just like it was silly when it was like Elizabeth Warren supporters were like, people were mean to me online. So now I'm going right. to support Biden instead of Bernie. Yeah. And you're like, people were mean to you. And now you don't support universal health care. Like what? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. But it's it definitely it happens. It happens. happens. Without a doubt. It definitely happens. And you see it happening in real time where the more like full of contempt and condescension and shaming and judgment comes from the left, the more people are like, oh, well, what are these people who are being nice to me? What do they have to say? Yeah, um, it's really sad. It's sad. I get sad when I watch that unfold. Well, the other- you saw it in real, like you saw her going down the slide in real time. Yes. Like now, she, next thing you know, she's going to be at a TPUSA event with Candace Owens. You, I mean, Tucker could have her on his program. Totally. Who knows? Totally. Who knows? But um, I also think the anecdote thing is important. And I think it's something the right really understands because they do this all the time. And it's so effective of like um, they'll pick out one instance. It used to be in the Tea Party era of like government waste. Right. They'll find yeah. like they funded lobster they, sex research. My fa- right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Or my favorite example is they found some conference where they technically on the bill paid like $20 a muffin or something right. like that. Uh-huh. And it was like endless Fox News segments about the outrage of these $20 muffins. They'll find one thing. They'll make it very real for people, very tangible, and then use that to say, and this is what's going on across the board. Um, and I think human beings, one of our, you know, we are not fundamentally like totally rational not people. We don't under- deal with numbers particularly well. We don't deal with data particularly well. So those anecdotes are very powerful. Those stories are a lot of times more politically powerful than a billion samples of people getting the vaccine mm-hmm. and doing really well with it. So Democrats tend to run around with like, here's my spreadsheet and here's my chart and here's my numbers and here's my graph. And Fox News will come in with like, yeah, but did you hear about Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend swollen balls? And it lands because we're wired to think in terms of stories and anecdotes. So while it would be better if people would look at the data, I also think it's important to recognize that that is a common human failing law in the system. I, you couldn't be more correct. And because that's the reality, I'm going to go ahead. Let's talk about something that happened with us not too long ago. Sagar had COVID, told the world he had COVID. Yep. He was mildly symptomatic for one show where you well, were, we were doing the show right next to him yep. for the entire show. For hours, you're sitting next to him. He's mildly symptomatic. You should have gotten COVID. Mm-hmm. You didn't get COVID. Especially Delta variant, way more infectious, very likely. And I'm with you all the time. I was just with you immediately after that, too. You should have gotten COVID. I should have gotten COVID. Mm -hmm. You didn't get COVID. I didn't get COVID. Right. You're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I'm convinced. That's why. That's So if you want to play the anecdote game, we'll play this fucking anecdote game. You want another anecdote? Every single person in my personal life who's gotten vaccinated, nobody has had anything worse than very mild symptoms for like half a day. Same. How about that? I had a headache for like, two hours, 24 hours after I got the shot, then I was perfectly fine. You, what the night of, you felt a little off, a little like fevery. Yeah, and and then the it. next morning, no big deal. Done. No my mother, deal. 
virtually nothing. My sister, <clears throat> my absolutely nothing for my sister. Deal. So you yeah. want to play the anecdote game? I can play the anecdote game all day long. See, the problem is people on our side of this discussion, we're more honest. So I like to go right to the data because that's all that fucking matters. Right. But if we are really wired in human nature to only play the anecdote game, fine, I'll play the anecdote game and I'll destroy you at the anecdote game because I'm correct on it. But there's another issue here, which is that I think the scarier, more salacious things also land. Right. Nobody's going right. to write an article about the thing I about, just said. Like, There's been 90,000 on the swollen balls. Fine, Nobody's right? going to say Kyle Kalinske and Crystal Ball should have gotten COVID and didn't because they're vaccinated. Nobody's going to write an article saying that. Right. Right. So anyway, it's silly. The whole thing is extremely silly, but I actually think it is very revealing about the way that these un things unfold, the way that oftentimes people sort of end up getting pushed to right-wing ideologies because they feel so judged and, like, held in contempt by um, some folks on the left, especially the liberal left, and the way that these that these little cultural moments immediately devolve yeah. into just total sectarianism. Absolutely. And and just to be clear, and I know you would agree with this as well, it, all, it works the other way as well. It's not just oh. like, you know, the outrage mobs only go in one direction. They go in every which direction. Of course. And unfortunately, I think it is a failure of human nature, again, to get back to it, that, like, yeah, people's reaction, their emotional reaction tends to be immediate aversion to anybody who's given them some sort of criticism. And it, on the one hand, that's understandable because, we're, you know, we, we only want so much conflict in our lives when it goes overboard. We feel unfairly under attack and we're like, can't handle it. But, yeah, you would just hope that with a little bit of time and removing yourself from the situation and thinking about it, one could be more rational. So I actually think the right is better in this regard because you see this like with um, Rogan, something we've talked about, yeah. how they'll ignore the million things that he says that they would vehemently disagree with universal health care yeah all that but stuff. then the, and the second wars. that he says something that they find convenient then yeah. they're embracing him like, he's oh our he's guy. critical of trans trans something and it's right like, he's oh, us. He's us. right yeah. or he said some mm -hmm. weird thing about the vaccine like we love this guy you know and they'll ignore they'll ignore and embrace as their own um whereas the left is the polar opposite they only fixate on the things where they true wildly disagree with him i agree that they're better in that respect sort of like savvier. claiming i'm claiming not saying something. it's like morally better they're just savvier. no i know but, yeah but the, it, they do also do the outrage mob thing that would then push people further into their own yeah, left-wing camp. So we've sure. seen it a million times, whether it's somebody who gets, like, remember when Martin Bashir did the thing about, you know, Sarah Palin shitting, shitting in Sarah Palin's mouth yeah, or something, and then, very well. then he got fired, and then, you know, it was like they went after him so aggressively. Now, these are the same people who care, say, oh, we care about free speech, you know, even if it's politically incorrect, you should be able to say whatever you want to say. Okay, well then, until somebody disagrees with you and says something that you find vulgar, then all of a sudden it's fire him. And so, of course, he's going to become more hardened in his beliefs. And there's a million examples of that that cut both directions. So that's my point. But yeah, I, I agree that they're savvier in that respect of like claiming something as their own. Yeah, sure. yeah. Like, I'm and they're sure, doing that with Nikki right I'm now. I'm sure Nikki has said lots of things right, that they yeah. would very much mm -hmm. disagree with. And on a normal night on Tucker, you'll find him like very morally outraged about the degenerate language and rap music or whatever. Yeah. But for, for this, instance he's going to put all that aside yeah he's amazing she's great because she happens to have said something he finds con politically convenient in this moment yeah tell us your thoughts on anaconda tucker yeah you know <laughs> he probably has i wonder if he's done a segment on that he's, very possible he's probably touched himself to that anyway <laughs> all right i know right had to go there. Thank you, Kyle. Um, okay, so what I do. speaking on uh, speaking of dirty and disgusting things, Democrats have been promising for literally more than a decade that they're going to make it possible for the government and the Medicare program to negotiate with drug makers to get lower prescription drug prices. 
Okay, year after year, election after election. Most notably, this was one of the core promises, both in the 2018 midterm elections and the 2020 presidential elections. You can understand why they lean into it. It literally has the support because it's such an obvious concept. Of course, Medicare should be able to negotiate for lower drug prices. It has something like 90% support in the population. Okay, wildly popular. There really is no good argument you can make against the idea of Medicare being able to negotiate for lower prescription drug prices. So this provision was supposed to be in the big reconciliation package that is being negotiated right now. However, a handful of totally corporate Democrats receiving thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars from Big Pharma have stripped that provision and are blocking it and standing in the way, which not only kills that particular Medicare drug pricing issue, but potentially blows up the whole entire thing. Let me add on one more piece of this that David Dayan at um, American Prospect pointed out, which is that one of the villains in this situation is Kathleen Rice. She sits on the committee that this provision would come out of. While this very same committee, AOC, had actually asked to be on, had a good shot at being placed on. Jerry Nadler, who's the dean of the New York congressional delegation, had pushed for her to go on. And Nancy Pelosi, to punish AOC for backing challengers to incumbent Democrats, instead puts Kathleen Rice on the committee. Mm -hmm. That's why the provision isn't passing out of the committee. So... And this is something that Pelosi, at least in theory, supports, and she definitely supports getting some kind of reconciliation package through. So the fact that she punished AOC by keeping her off this committee and put this terrible corporate Democrat on instead is coming back to bite the entire party right now. Yeah, well, I mean, that assumes that Pelosi actually cares about lowering the drug prices. Well, no, I don't assume that. What I assume is that she cares about actually getting a reconciliation package done. she does. You're right about that. She does. Yes. Um, uh, Note to the media. Note to the media. Do not call these people centrists or moderates anymore. They are not, by any stretch of the imagination, centrist or moderate. If you're against 90% of the American people on something, (laughs) you're an extremist. the definition of extreme. You are a radical. You are a corporatist. You are corrupt. Let's call this what it is. And that's the thing in, with mainstream media in D.C., there's this like, you know, there's this underlying decorum, I I don't know what to call it, decorum rules where you're not allowed to say, you'd probably get fired if you worked for Politico and you said they're corrupt. But that's what it is. That's calling a spade a spade. That's the only reason to do what they did here. It's the only reason is that, let's look, how much money do you take from Merck or Pfizer or GlaxoSmithKline or any of the other pharmaceutical companies? They took a lot of money from them, which is why they're doing what they're doing. I honestly don't understand how they can sleep at night. Because when you have 90% of the American people saying, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Are you kidding me? In, in the UK, now I don't know what the number is anymore, but there was a time when to get medicine, you just go to the doctor and it's just like a $10 copay and you get any medicine. Even if that medicine with all the production and everything that went into it cost, you know, let's say there was one that was a million dollars. I covered the story because it was a baby who needed this very rare thing. It cost a million dollars. The NHS was like, that's on us. Well, and let me uh, add this to the conversation, too. So part of why this is so damaging to the prospect of the whole reconciliation package is because you save a lot of money. Right. Um, it's something like it's like 
$500 million. It's a, it's a significant amount of money that you would save through these reforms. Well, they're counting on that money to be able to have the pay-fors to get the reconciliation pact. Do you have it through? Well, no, no, no. Well, so what I was going to say to your point is this is the other dirty trick that the corporatists do, that the corrupt Democrats do. They say... Oh, yeah, yeah, we're in favor of all these things, but everything has to be paid for. Well, and that's the thing is they'll pretend to be fiscally responsible, but now they're the ones who are stripping out some of the pay for us here that that, would enable it to be, quote unquote, fiscally responsible. That's the exact point I was going to make, which is they say everything has to be paid for. And then the progressives go, "Okay, no problem. Here's how we're going to pay for it. And then those same corporatists go, not like that. Right. Well, wait, wait, wait. You just said everything had to be paid for. This is the only way we could pay for it. The only way we could pay for it is taxing corporations. The only way that we could pay for it is raising taxes on the top 1%, taxing capital, taxing income a little bit more. The only way we could pay for it is getting rid of the unnecessary, wasteful loopholes and deductions that are really there also because of corruption. This is the only way we could pay for it. Mm -hmm. So you can't say we have to pay for it and then the only ways we could pay for it, we're not going to do it. And listen, their only out is to say, blow up the whole thing or raise taxes on working people. That's the only other direction they can go. So they either want to blow up the entire thing or they want to raise taxes on working people. Again, why? Because they're corrupt. And first and foremost, they're looking after big pharma. They're not looking after you. And this doesn't have to do anything with their political considerations. That's right. Back it's not home, ideology. Cetera, it's not it's ideology. Not, oh, I'm representing my district. It's more moderate. It's a swing district. That is complete and utter bullshit. Taxing the rich is very popular. Insanely Taxing popular. Is very popular. And this particular provision, again, has like literally 90% support. The only people who don't support it like work in the That's pharmaceutical right. industry or are members of Congress, apparently. So it is wildly absurd. But it it really, remember that video that got leaked of that Exxon lobbyist who was revealing their strategy? Because Exxon's very opposed to any of the climate change provisions in the bill. But they know that those provisions are really popular. So rather than directly attacking the climate change provisions, he revealed that their strategy was to go after the pay force. Right. So that mm-hmm. ultimately you really uh, you really hem in what's possible within the bill because you can only, oh gosh, we can only raise a trillion dollars. So that I guess that climate change stuff is just out the window or I guess, you know, the healthcare provisions or the universal pre-K or whatever it is are out the window here. And that was what he said was their strategy. And then you can see these politicians executing it in real time. That's right. I mean, when you never hear mansion or cinema or these assholes talking about like, oh, actually, I just really oppose kids getting preschool or actually I just really oppose families getting extra money through the child tax credit or, oh, actually, just really oppose universal community college. No, because they know that stuff is all popular. So they have to pretend like what they're really concerned about fiscal responsibility mm-hmm. and, oh, we don't want to raise taxes because that may hurt our economic growth and then working class people won't have jobs, et cetera, et cetera. It's all a game. And again, has nothing to do with political realities back at home, everything to do with both their campaign contributions and also the places they want to work after they finish mm. their public service, in quotes. Here, here. That's exactly right. Um, should we get to this great interview? I think we should. Russell Brand hosts a great podcast, has a phenomenal YouTube channel. He stars in films and he does stand-up comedy. Um, man can be found everywhere. Very excited to talk to him. Here's Russell Brand. Russell Brand, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Crystal and Kyle and friends. 
<laughs> you are the friend. You are the friend, today, sir. You are the friend. Whether you want to be or not. Mm-hmm. Um, just start by telling us, like, what are you working on right now? And also, what are you sort of most interested in right now? Right now, I'm doing my YouTube channel and creating my YouTube content, some of which is commentary on news, and some of which on my awakening channel is our techniques for personal improvement. Also, what I'm doing is uh, a live work. I'm on tour with my show, 33, just doing live work. And I'm, what I'm interested in is infusing political discourse with spiritual ideas and treating spirituality and politics comedically without undermining their authenticity and sincerity. So, Russell, uh, tell me a a little bit about what the closest thing to your political ideology would be. Would it be like social democracy or some form of anarchism or libertarian socialism? What would it be? As far as I can understand in the hypothetical space in which I necessarily have to exist, the imagination, the only available conduit, is some form of leftist libertarianism Mm. and anarcho-syndicalism, focusing on individual freedom and community values, accepting that there are many, many ways that people might live these days. And that as long as your community is run in accordance with your own values and that you as an individual are able to realize who you are and become who you are, rather than performing who you are or following a pathway that's likely been laid down to you by a sort of set of cultural and familial influences, then we are then we're getting close to an approximation of freedom. I've become increasingly cynical about the possibility of large-scale social systems to cooperatively exist. I'm beginning to think that the whole nation-state project is entering a final phase, not just some of the great empires of our time but the idea itself and i recognize how modern and recent and what a short term it is if you you can try to capture for a moment the scale of actual human history as opposed to the kind of myopic and claustrophobic perspective most of us tend to have looking back glancing back 2000 years at best you know so um for me, the, the key thing I, I feel is that instead of focusing on disparity and difference, focus on the actual reality of life. What is it you really want? I think many of us have been sort of hypnotized into oppositionist discourse rather than focusing on the actual fundamental nature of our reality. What, have you, what are you going to be doing today? What do you want to do today? What is it that led you? So you basically think the nation state is on its way out or should be on its way out. What led you to think that? And is that a prospect that you find encouraging, hopeful, or sort of scary, uncertain, or some other thing altogether? You can't have radical change and certainty simultaneously. You have to, to some degree, accept that change and even progress may require chaos. When I say chaos, I don't mean 
violent or violent revolution. I just mean uncertainty. And the famous adage um, or, or, or the opposition, the idiom that you're normally presented with, or maxim more than idiom, I suppose, is, oh, well, what's this society going to look like? What's the blueprint of your utopia? And of course, as has been pointed out, no society forms on the basis of a blueprint. That's never happened before. It's typically been an evolutionary prospect. Sometimes I feel frightened about change. I'm a person that's done pretty well out of the existing system. I'm not poor anymore. I don't live on welfare or in a low paid job. I'm comfortable. But something don't feel right to me. Something don't feel right to me. And I feel that we're not anywhere near the apex of what it might be to be human. I feel that many of the ideas of the last century that defined us and divided us are expired, but have within them kernels of truth that were were trying to be realized through the limitations of those models. For example, you know, sort of communism, say, is a sort of a really relevant ideology for an industrial age, but for a post-industrial age, perhaps its relevance wavers, but the ideas of fraternity, egalitarianism, still maintain their value. And as um, the native man from your country there, Russell Means, said like that both capitalism and communism presume certain things. That, and he says that in his culture, they see them as just different sides of the same coin, that both capitalism and communism assume that the world and it, the earth is a resource, that the primary function of a person is to labor and toil. And this is why I feel that the infusion of some spiritual esotericism into mainstream social and political thinking is a necessity. Fundamental ideas like why do you think your life belongs to you? Why do you think the, your, the purpose of your life is to make yourself happy? You know, like I guess I'm as influenced by comedians as anything else. And when George Carlin says, you know, why do you think you have rights? Who gave you the rights? God, here we go again, says the great man. You know, like many of these things are sort of concepts that have entered it, like become kind of universal without having the tires properly kicked. You made an interesting point there, Russell, that I never thought of before, which is this idea that you can't have big change without chaos. And I find it interesting because as an American leftist, we don't even have like a lot of the basic things that you guys have in European countries. So, you know, my instinct is like, well, wait, I want to have change, but I want to have order in the process. I don't want to devolve into chaos. I want to sort of move towards a social democratic system where everybody has education and everybody has health care and everybody has paid time off and stuff like that. You mentioned anarcho-syndicalism there. Um, are, is Noam Chomsky a big influence for you? The stuff from Noam Chomsky that I understand, I find really, really encouraging and inspiring. But of course, he's a great philosopher and intellectual as well as linguist. So I can only claim to understand about 10% of what he says and I've only heard about, you know, 5% of everything he's said or written, if that. So, yeah, he is, because like many of the things that uh, that are accessible was sort of just easily consumed cultural artifacts, the manufacturer of consent, the sort of the nature of media manipulation. I, 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 I love Chomsky. So, yes. Have you um, gone through a kind of political evolution? And if you could just sort of like chart that for us, how did you come to the place where you really felt that politics and spirituality can't possibly be disentangled? 
Because ethics and morality are spiritual ideas, why have a fair society? Why not just have a society where all you do is serve yourself and just get what you need and do what you need in order to get it? Why not do that? And, you know, for me, you can't... You can't rationally answer that question. And when people do try to rationally answer that question, like, you know, what is altruism? What is love from an evolutionary and from an evolutionarily biological, evolutionary biological perspective? They say things like, you know, reciprocal altruism. That's why we're kind to each other because we recognize we're part of a tribe. You know, the demystification. I'm not interested in demystifying. I'm interested in remystifying. I'm not interested in desacralizing. I'm interested in resacralizing, recognizing that there is sacredness. The reason we should treat each other well is because there are deep truths when we tr uh, accessible and uh, evoked when we treat each other kindly, that there is more truth in our oneness and our connection and our alignment than there is in our separateness. Even, you know, from your, con your constitution is obviously, you know, heavily informed by enlightenment, rationalism and Christianity, thinkers like Thomas Paine and all that. And like, so you cannot divorce spirituality and spiritual thinking or even religious thinking from the construction of social systems. And I feel that the relegation of spirituality from the, uh, an a priori or at least a priority position in public life and the public discourse is what's responsible for this kind of state of teetering nihilism, meaninglessness, emptiness, commodification, libidinization, objectification, that all you really, the best you're going to get is a bit of pleasure. The best you're going to get is a bottle of beer and fellatio. Don't even look beyond <laughs> that. The pleasure, the distraction of pleasure is as good as it's going to get for you. And I speak as a I feel like it's my apostasy, my apostasy against the culture that I was a devotee of as a celebrity, as a person that even though I felt like I was to a degree spiritually awake, even though in my heart of hearts, I thought none of this would work. I nonetheless pursued it as best I could. And it's only because of failures that were beyond my control that I find myself awakening. Maybe I would not have chosen this path. Maybe I would not have done. But for me, I've experienced, I've had the privilege and good fortune to see what it's like to be really, really poor. I know what it's like to be a junkie. I know what it's like to be in crack houses and smack houses. And I know what it's like to hang out with the have-nots, to be among them and to be plucked from that and to be given the opportunity of, apparent opportunity of fame and fortune and to know the sort of hollow ring, the dead pang in the belly of those situations. I'm not talking about great creativity. I met incredible like geniuses in that world, brilliant performers, magnificent writers, great directors, incredible actors. I'm not criticizing individual people's talents. I'm saying that all things are a subset of a fundamentalist ideology that we live within. Media, subset of a fundamentalist ideology. So it will therefore bear the hallmarks and carry the values of the dominator ideology. Science is a subset of, a, of an fundamentalist ideology. So all science, yes, you can sort of look at its veracity, query its veracity, or be believe in its veracity, excuse me. But you have to acknowledge it is a subset of a system of domination that is, you know, what, what you might call at this point some sort of advanced late capitalism. Certainly the philosopher, uh, God rest his soul, Mark Fisher, believed that uh, late capitalism was a good way of describing it. Although Mark Fisher was a communist, so I don't think he'd necessarily want his soul blessed by a spiritual man such as I. 
So, uh, so let me put on my old school Kyle new atheist hat here and push back a little bit on that idea. Um, do you fear at all sort of like the bastardization of spirituality in the same way that religion can be used to, you know, people use it to go feed people who are hungry in developing countries. People use it to treat those around them wonderfully. Religion is also used in a theocratic sense where, you know, you try to relegate women to second-class citizenship and you have a rigid hierarchy as these are the superior people and these are the inferior people and it has sectarian ends, for example. So do you fear at all the bastardization of spirituality? And what do we do about that to make sure that the instinct towards spirituality isn't perverted to use towards bad reactionary ends? I say, Kyle, stick to what I call Sesame Street ethics, Sesame Street ethics, kindness, compassion, service, not to get caught up in erudite linguistic trickery or esotericism. Just think, are you being kind? What is your motivation in this moment now? Why are you talking to that person? Do you see every single person in this world, even apparently powerful people as a vessel from whom you can pour something? I'm talking to this person because it's an opportunity. I'm talking to this person because they're sexually attractive to me. The the spiritual program that I was taught is a 12 step one. It was about awakening from my unconscious addiction first to chemical then to different kinds of behaviors. And then I recognized that it was the sort of the inner rubric of self-centeredness that needed to be shared, to be let go of. That's what it was. The idea that all that mattered really was what I want, what am I getting? This is a powerful magnet. I drift back to it all the time. I'm far from a completed project in those terms. I live on the cross of my wanting and my understanding that there is nothing more for me to get, that there is no rosette sticker or gold star that's going to adorn me, that's going to make me feel complete, that I have to move in the direction of devotion. Of course, spirituality could be used misused. Spirituality is misused. It has become a subset of the dominated culture. Meditate, become spiritual, then you'll be better at your job or you'll be better looking and you'll be able to have sex with more mates or make more money because of your meditation. It's already happened. Everything is commodified. It's a dominator ideology. I think the only way, I don't know what the only way is, how could I possibly, but one thing that seems like it might work is individual awakening and collective cooperation. Political radicalism allied with spiritual optimism. What I mean by radicalism is not left on either side of what I believe to be a fake spectrum, but the radicalism of run your own communities, run your own life. You don't need any centralized authority, whether it's state or corporate, or what we have now in most countries, a sort of a ghastly hybrid of the two, a helix of serpents entwined to dominate you when actually you are perfectly capable of running your own lives. This is why it shocks us in some level when we hear about the personal lives of politicians, because it's like, oh, wow, they're just flawed human beings. Of course, they're going to make deals that benefit them financially. Of course, they're being dishonest in their private lives. Like, you know, like any of us might be, I'm capable of all sorts of corruption, like any human being. And like, that's why don't put people in that position of power. Like, learn a, a kind of compassionate iconoclasm. Learn to recognize that nobody is perfect. They're going to let you down. There are, have been great men and women. Your country, you know, in the last century produced so many all now, you know, stone dead, martyred and murdered, that were willing to live for a higher thing. And what I feel is that 
do not create systems. Like as Gandhi said, that's you know, basically as Gandhi said, there's no point in us kicking out the British and then replacing them, you know, and by maintaining the systems that they bestowed upon us. We have to recognize that India is a country of 70,000 villages. Each of them should be fully independent and autonomous, trading only when necessary. And we must, he said, getting on for a century ago lose our infatuation with gadgetry, our infatuation with objects and things. On some level, sacrifice might be necessary. You know, I live in comfort. What will be demanded of me? Will it be demanded that I live with more people, that I give up stuff? You know, like that, what do they say to everybody on the left? You hypocrite. Have some homeless people and some immigrants and some refugees living in your house. Give us your money then. Give us your money if you want your communism. I bet people have said it 10 times already listening to me talk in their heads or out loud or in the little hate conduits that we have access to on our phones. And yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe that is what needs to happen. Maybe there needs to be more sacrifice, more willingness to sacrifice and change on a personal level. As Eric Fromm says, the priest espouses the word, the prophet is the word made flesh. Live your values, live your values so that people can see what it means to you. So philosophically, you generally have people on the right, they would make the argument that your meaning and your purpose comes primarily from you as an individual. And that's the old trope that you always hear, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's generally the, the right wing view of it. Generally speaking, the left wing view of it is more that your meaning and your purpose comes from the collective, comes from, from the community and working together towards positive ends. Do you think that uh, perhaps there's a balance there that really meaning and purpose has to be found both in individual pursuits and in the pursuits of the collective? Or is it your take that really it's primarily the collective is what matters most? It's a false dichotomy, but the, all of these um, dualities are sort of only temporary and only exist as a result of the limitations of our senses. You also can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you are you. And if you pull your own bootstraps because you are you, <laughs> the tension and resistance, you'll just become a circle made of boots and hands. <laughs> you'll have bootstraps up in your face. Um, I say awaken as an individual, recognize that you are an individual. We can see from our biology, from our DNA and indeed our fingerprints that we are unique. But generally speaking, we have the same set of organs and limbs with some variety, limitless in variety, infinite variety. So whilst we are comparable in terms of our organic um, construction, we are we are unique also. And I think the actualization of our uniqueness is important. I don't think people want to be kind of um, some homogenized morass of humanity in the gray boiler suit of some Stalinist nightmare, allow people to adorn themselves in whatever colors to express themselves however they feel. But for me, being part of a collective is the only way you would have, um, is a way, perhaps not the only way, a way you can have a higher purpose. I have necessarily seek recourse to our evolution uh, in an obviously a somewhat pseudo way because there are no other means accessible to me unless I'm willing to go on some sort of three, four, five-year anthropological course. And frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm too busy. But it seems like what, what did we evolve to live like? How did we evolve? We evolved to live in communities of 75 to 150 with a common purpose naturally because our survival was predicated to a degree on cooperation rather than competition, though friendly competition can be a delightful and beautiful thing. Align ourselves with our evolution, not in some mad Luddite way. I don't want to go and live in an Ewok village, although they do look lovely. I'm not against <laughs> technology. It's an absolute 
necessity, but recognize what is it that we are like. In the same way that we can see that our tendency to eat sugar and fat because of the evolutionary imperatives that our lives have evolved beyond, it becomes an impediment because we, you know, we eat too much of it because of its accessibility. I wonder what ideas, I wonder what other stimulants we are flooded with, bombarded with, that we oughtn't be accessing and consuming to the degree that we are. But one might postulate when looking at media and the amount media uses fear, a very primal emotion, and desire, another very primal sensation, that we are continually suspended in these primal states that pre prevent us from accessing our higher and even rational mind. Perhaps we all build communities and collectives where we can live rationally, acknowledging there will be spikes of fear and desire, acknowledging there will be fallibility, there will be conflict and confrontation. We're not trying to replace a perfect society. We're trying to replace a deeply flawed society on the precipice of apocalypse. So if we bear that in mind, that should be fuel for some optimism. Russell, did you follow this um, controversy discussion this week about AOC at the Met Gala in her Tax the Rich dress? Did you follow that? Yeah. Yeah. So I was curious your thoughts about it because the whole conversation is about, you know, AOC, obviously, she uh, proclaims herself to believe in a sort of class politics, aligns herself with the working class, is of the working class herself. And the critique here was, there you are hobnobbing with the rich and the famous and giving a performative display with this dress and do you even really mean it? But I wonder as someone who also has sort of like access and invitation to those elite spaces, how you thought about it and how you think about how you navigate being essentially a traitor both to your cultural and economic class. I think about it a lot. Part of my um, spiritual program is to try not to be judgmental of other people's actions because I am so flawed and fallible myself and I'm sure I've done a thousand hypocritical things before breakfast. Huh. Personally, I wouldn't um, attend events like that anymore, possibly because it makes me feel kind of nervous, but I'm sure AOC is a highly intelligent person and, you know, a, a intuitively shrewd political operator for whom I have respect has her reasons. And for me, my spirituality and my philosophy is for me. I'm talking about it now, but I hope I'm not hectoring. I've not said that, that you, Kyle, or you, Crystal, you should do, you do whatever you want. You know more than I do about millions of things. All I know is how to sort of roughly navigate being me without ending my own life or having to take crack and heroin every day to sort of ameliorate the terrible pain of the empty hollowness of the cultures we're invited to inhabit. And I'm sure, like me, AOC has her reasons for doing what she's doing and that she, uh, you know, I don't feel like judging nobody. I feel like as a person that grew up in an ordinary home, single parent family, blue collar world, that I miss where I'm from. And having lived recently through Brexit and Trump, I've seen a lot of hurtful rhetoric thrown around about ordinary working people, a lot of um, judgment, I feel on a personal level, and I know this is common because I know other people in my position, my position ain't that unique, that feel the same thing, a kind of guilt, sometimes even shame about not being poor anymore. It's not 
glorified in this country in the same way that it is in yours. I do feel that it is somewhat unfair, but, you know, I've got children, you know, that's it. So you find yourself in that tension. I'm not yet bold enough to say, right, okay, we're giving everything away and we are going to live humbly. We're going to, we are going to feel the spiritual sucker of knowing we're doing the right thing. I don't know what's going to happen to me yet as a result of those kind of feelings. I really don't. Personally, I think, um, as I said to you before, that you it is at all of our individual duty to become the embodiment of our beliefs rather than the kind of um, vocal transmitter of our beliefs. If people see, you know, some of the people that I most admire, like say from a spiritual perspective, someone like Amma, she lives that. That's her life. Her life is she goes around trying to raise money to do good things, cuddling people. As far as I can see, she has no personal life, no other cares other than, oh, there's been a flood. We need to build houses. We need to support schools. Oh, women in this area, oh, girls can't get educated. Let's make sure they get educated. She just is living in a constant flow of devotion. But that, like, she's a sublime being, as far as I can understand, someone that's been liberated from egotism and perhaps the only root to that is through spiritual practices, which is why I return to it again and again. And maybe not all of us need to be avatars, but all of us need to have values and principles and live to some degree in accordance with them. And I don't think any of us should be rushing to ally, ally ourselves with an existing political ideology because I think by their fruits shall we know them. Now, I'm not saying let's discard all of history. It's nothing but a waste bin. There's so many beautiful cultural and ideological artifacts everywhere, every nation the world so many beautiful cultural things for me though i'm interested in moving forward i'm interested in the reality of our challenges from an ecological economic and social perspective how might we address them and to me what seems most reasonable particularly in the space that is so defined by oppositionism for people to be able to live within communities where they are able to set up their own value systems and not feel like, oh, well, I don't agree with this anymore. I don't want to live like this. I feel like that what's the point in having some centralized body telling people how they have to be, what they can do, what they can't do, unless it's absolutely necessary. Someone's going to have to decide on some universals. There's going to have to be some consensus on don't murder people, don't harm others. I shouldn't imagine we'll struggle too much to achieve some basic universal principles by which a confederacy of fully autonomous communities could live with economic interaction when necessary with the priority being some degree of responsibility and preservation, the, the respecting the rights of the individual, but prioritizing as much as we can the rights of the community, not because of some ethical reason, but because people feel better. We feel better when we do the right thing. I also recognize my own limitations, that there are some things I'm good at, there are other things I ain't good at. And, you know, I, I welcome collaboration partly because of how limited I know myself to be. Yeah. You know, um, it seems like, and I don't want to mischaracterize your comments, but it seems like at times you kind of give yourself a hard time about not choosing to give it all away or bring in the immigrants or lead a sort of humbler, more anonymous life. The flip side argument would be, here you are, people know who you are, you have this huge platform, and you can use that platform as you are to try to change people's minds and affect some kind of change. Whereas if you, as one individual, you know, just giving away your wealth is going to be a drop in the bucket of the the pain and the suffering and isn't ultimately going to change any of these systems. So how do you think about those things? Do you think that's a good argument? Or do you think that the way you live in and of itself is sort of an end in, 
in and of itself, regardless of it, if it has a tremendous impact on the society. Crystal, I like the one where I get to live in comfort, where I get to have comfy clothes and a comfy life. And also, remember, my ideology is not some terrible, drab, ascetic, why don't we live in penury and misery? It's like, let's not live distracted continually by consumerism and stimulating mindless pleasure, some kind of middle way, as the Buddha did call it, uh, called it. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, what I feel like is that, yeah, I want to give myself a bit of a break because I'm progressing, albeit slowly, and I hope that I will improve more. And I recognize that in my position, I can participate in conversations, but what is required at this time is more than conversation, it is action. So I'm looking at opportunities to create community, adjacent nations where people can set up their own systems, where there is necessarily some kind of defiance. You can't change the world <laughs> without standing up to unnecessary authoritarianism without forming your own communities without freely communicating your own values but I recognize for me the personal journey is fundamental that I have to personally become free of the chains that bind me my own uh, vanities and requirements but I also recognize too that me being willing to continually openly acknowledge my challenges and my struggles hopefully means that the entry price for the party that changes the world is not perfection it's okay to be flawed that's part of who we are it's okay to have made and to make mistakes that's part of our journey restitution and redemption are beautiful things again like it says and i've noticed i'm quoting the bible a lot i don't know quite what's happening here but like in uh, Isaiah, when it said uh fear not for i have redeemed you i have called you by your name you are mine i saw that once i was in a prison i was doing something very lefty and helpful. I was reading poems to prisoners because if you're in a prison, what you really need deep down is a poem from a celebrity. <laughs> yeah, fix that everything. Really helps you to deal with. Oh, thank God for that. I was hoping possibly for better conditions and some opportunities <laughs> when I leave prison. And in fact, a society that doesn't generate a class of prisoners just to prop up private prison prison industries. But if I can't have that. I'll take a poem. So as I was um, thinking, like musing on those hypocrisies and feeling a bit nervous in the chapel at Brixton Prison in London, I see that thing, fear not, because for I have redeemed you, I've called you by your name, you are mine. And I was feeling fearful. So I thought, oh, this is good that it's telling me not to be afraid. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. And redeem, we mostly think of it as forgiveness. Fear not, for I've forgiven you, I've called you by your name, you are mine. But the fact that it says I've called you by your name, you are mine, suggested to me that it's the other usage of the term redemption, like you redeem your ticket at the end of your night at a nightclub to reclaim your coat, fear not because I've for I have redeemed you, I've called you by your name. And it made me feel oh, the only way to be free from fear is to belong to a higher thing, to belong to God, to be a vessel for a higher purpose, whatever your God is, wherever your God is from, even if it's the atheistic, rationalistic, materialistic God of, I don't know, community, kindness, love, I don't know where it comes from, without an acknowledgement of the undoubted, unknowable magnitude that must make up the vast majority of all phenomena, given that so little is known. But I felt that if you belong to a higher purpose, if you belong to a higher thing, then freedom from fear is a possibility. And that's part of what inspires me to uh, continue to change, although reading poems to prisoners doubtless has its place too. There's a, to your point, there's a great Nietzsche quote that I love. One who has a why to live for can endure almost any how. 
And I think that's profound. Um, so to briefly touch on the AOC thing that you mentioned, Crystal, you have a great saying that uh, you and Sagar have used for breaking points, um, which is hate each other less and hate the elites more. Mm-hmm. Like that's the whole point of the show. Yes. And so the question, Russell, that I have for you is, I do see this split on the left where there are some people on the left, and I'd probably include myself in this, that not only am I against the financial elite in the sense that these are the people who rig the system and, you know, you've talked about redistribution of wealth. We obviously should tax them and redistribute that wealth in a way that's fair. So not only am I against the the financial elite defined as people who've rigged the system for their favor against the average people, but I also do view myself as kind of against the cultural elite as well. But then there's other on the le- others on the left who are against the financial elite but not really against the cultural elite. And in some ways, they might even consider the cultural elite allies because, you know, Hollywood, for example, even though it's packed full of hypocrites, there's also, you know, people there generally are supportive of LGBTQ rights, generally uh, are supportive of equality in some senses of the term. So where do you fall on that spectrum between uh, being anti-financial elite and anti-cultural elite or being anti-financial elite and pro-cultural elite? Well, I feel like There is a, in myself, I think it's necessary to focus on simple values. I understand that the seduction, the temptation, the allure of glamour, and I'm sympathetic to other people who are where I've been. And like I acknowledge it's only, you know, failures and things beyond my control that perhaps granted me the opportunity to even experience a degree of awakening elitism like you know i think we all like excellence i think we enjoy that it's beautiful Mm. to be like an incredible artist or an incredible athlete but expressions of economic elitism uh, i think whether they are cultural or otherwise is a form of inequality and i think people perhaps find it particularly galling when that cultural elitism is allied with a kind of moral piety that don't seem Mm. to be being manifest through the behavior um you know i think integrity and authenticity like am i being integral to myself perhaps even if you discard cultural values that you may or may not agree with who, who are you trying to become? Who do you, this is your life. Who is it that you want to be? How do you want to spend your time? What is it you want to be? What about those days when you just move from screen to screen, from screen to screen, just consuming empty, dumb imagery, just being stimulated, your consciousness now bagged, buckled, stripped, hung up like game, perhaps to be cured or perhaps to be stowed or perhaps to be flung aside, remain awake and active. I don't feel that there's anything to gain in those rarefied spaces at the end of red carpets. I found them eventually quite sepulchral citadels of stimulation of no real value to me. But as I say, I'm easily uh, stimulated, easily distracted, and I'm not too quick to judge other people. But me, in terms of looking for a solution, I would... I once did a thing on a, I did a thing where, you know, when billionaires maybe will invite you to a thing. Ten years ago, I went to one of those things and I remember thinking, no, this isn't it. The answer, you know, the answer is to be found being with people. For me, I want to be where I'm from. I want to be with the people that I 
grew up with for all of the fear that I felt back then among blue collar men. It is them that I find peace with now. Blue collar people, ordinary people. Populism ain't a dirty word. Populism means you are caring for the majority of people, respecting minorities, respecting all people's individual rights, accepting that people find the expression of who they are, sometimes through rubrics that are given to them through a cultural lens or a biological or a sexual or a racial or a religious lens, but is usually a lot more complicated than that. And to have respect for all forms, whether it's like a, a million people or a couple of hundred people, you know, for me, I think we can um, find solutions when we respect people's individual rights to be who they are and move beyond it into what where we can form alliances. One of the things that I really respect about you, Russell, is that you actively seek out conversations and debates with people that you know you're going to disagree with and that you're going to disagree with them a lot. Um, There's such a um, culture in a lot of spaces on the left of just we want to condemn people who are different from us. We we don't want to platform them. We want to censor them. We want to push them out of polite society. So I really respect the way that you engage with people across the political spectrum. Kyle and I watched your debate with Candace Owens recently, which, by the way, I thought you handled yourself very well in. And she's not a she's not an easy person to sort of go up against in that sense. But as I was watching it, it also occurred to me that you and she seem to be engaged in two very different projects. So I don't know you, but it seems to me like you come to a conversation trying to have an exchange of ideas. You're willing to give or seed on points where your opponent makes a good point. You're willing to be honest about your own limitations and potential hypocrisies. Candace Owens was there to win, right? She's there to sort of like, you know, show you up or make you look silly or prove her point. And there's very little give and take um, with someone like that. She just wants to sort of win her rhetorical and ideological point. How do you think about engaging with people like Candace? What's your goal in that interaction? And um, what do you, what is your sort of, what do you want people to take from those exchanges? I believe so strongly in love. I believe so strongly that there is a better way for us to live that I think I can, um, God willing, speak with anybody and just try to understand them. I believe strongly that if you could see into the deepest and most private corners of a person's heart, that what you would see would be beautiful. I believe we're, as Solzhenitsyn says, that the line between good and evil runs not between nations, creeds, states or ideologies, but through every human heart. So when I approach someone, I recognize that I'm talking to another person who is like me, who is comprised of good and bad, who is fallible and beautiful in equal measure. So I just try and think, I want to understand you. I want to understand you. And then I try my best to listen. I look back at that clip because I see that you two chatted about it on on the show that I'm on now. Thanks for doing that. I I felt a little uh, egoic rush. I felt a pat on the back as you did it. Thanks for doing it. (laughs) And I I wish I'd had access to some of the data because me, I run on... um, I run on sort of uh, spirit and emotion and feeling and those kind of things. Although I've got good memory, if someone tells me some facts, I'll remember it for a while while it's relevant. I'm not, you know, so certain in my position that I'm not willing to learn. I'm not so certain about who I am that I'm willing to 
um, deny other people the right to communicate what they happen to believe. And so what I think is this is a person like me. And lately I started to um, fantasize that, you know, that what if a person from the sort of what is considered the right and what is considered the left were like, captured and taken aboard a spacecraft and whisked around the galaxy, would they cling on? Like, I hated Trump. I hate Biden. I hated Trump. Like, while they were looking down at the Milky Way, fading away. Or if they were in the sub-particular world of quarks, where the laws of physics, as we know them, fall apart, would you cling on to your temporal ideologies there? You know, I think in the ultimate analysis, Love is an acknowledgement of the fundamental oneness that beneath the water of illusion, the land is all connected in spite of the apparent archipelago. So I assume that oneness. I assume we are connected. And when people say stuff I disagree with, I think, okay, well, I've done some dumb stuff. I've said dumb stuff. I don't really agree with that. And when I watched that back, I was a bit more intense. It was a little while ago that it was maybe two years ago. And she came around and she's a she's a lovely character. You know, she's very interesting and alive. And I think I was very sort of affected by the totality of her, you know, and there's I, I don't agree with, as I said, when I was having that conversation, barely anything she says politically, but, you know, it's, what is it really? I mean, we're, we're after the hurricane, after the apocalypse, what are we going to do? It's all theoretical, really. It only, only really matters how you treat each other. So how I treat them is like, this is, in a sense, it's rhetoric. It's not, it's not, it's not real. That's what I I fundamentally feel that people deep down are good. And perhaps you can get to that place if you listen to them and love them. Although I could have done a lot better in that conversation because I think I got a bit sort of, I don't know, irked. I think I think you did a really good job in that conversation. And I mean, to your point, I've I've had dialogue with Charlie Kirk. I debated Charlie Kirk at Politicon. And um, you know, uh, just like Crystal said, I think the main key and the reason why it's very respectable how you approach it, whereas maybe when others try this approach, it's not as respectable, is because in your case, you'll agree where you agree with the person, but you'll also disagree where you disagree. And it doesn't have to be personal. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, anything that's below the belt. It's just very upfront and straightforward. And there's something that's respectable about that. Um, I've personally gone back and forth on this, though, because I don't know... I really do struggle with this to this day. I don't know what to do in a situation where I'm actually convinced that somebody's like a bad actor, that they're not coming from a pure place, that they are just sort of playing a role, that they view themselves as a character with a narrative and they have a niche to fill, they have a lane. And I don't know if, uh, you know, if I go into a conversation willing to change my mind and willing to be open and willing to go back and forth and that person's just like, you know, you're talking to a brick wall, I don't know if that's fruitful. So half the time I feel like, well, it's still worth it so everybody can see we have full transparency, what that person believes is all out there on the table. But then the other half the time I feel like, I'll just want to talk to whoever I find interesting. And, and who's going to be honest. Right, and who's going to be honest. Uh, so what do you think about that? It, which, I mean, I guess you've fallen more on the school of thought of, of I'm just going to give everybody a chance, and as long as I'm honest and upfront, then then it has inherent value, Correct. That's that's right, Carl. And even if they are, as you say, bad actors, in a sense, that's in a way easier because then they don't even really believe it. 
it's just a performance. And the problem with the kind of stuff we do, we're existing in a performative space. You know what I mean? I'm deliberately trying to stay articulate and present and listen. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I've probably spoken a bit too much and used too many long words and all that kind of thing. These things are, my human side is ticking away to my social side. And, you know, like I think that we can demonstrate something important simply by engaging. I think there is something very dangerous about the polarization and separation. And I think once you start feeling contempt for one another, it's you're at least on a line of, oh, maybe we could kill those people. <laughs> you know, like contempt is a, a good, like a, a good ingredient in a recipe for, um, you know, transformation and connection. And yeah, I, I, I also feel like, how can I possibly know? how I would be if I was an African-American woman who had had the experiences that Candice Owens described. How could I possibly, how could I possibly know? So I'm in no position to judge her. I'm just in a position to communicate with her. And I know there's a lot of people who see it differently and I don't judge them either. They can do that. Yeah. Um, I have no good way to segue to this, but um, we've been closely tracking the saga with Nicki Minaj's cousin's friends swollen balls um which has actually been very revealing in terms of how people responded to it so she puts out this tweet that's like sort of at least pro-vaccine hesitant right fox news sees us on it tucker carlson loves it i think he even had candace owens on to talk about it right msnbc they're outraged joy reed is going off about how terrible Nicki minaj is etc Nikki says something mildly praiseful of Tucker Carlson. No, just that, tweeted a video of him. That's it. Yeah, just with, that had like a bullseye target right, on it. Yeah, like he exactly. nailed it. Mm -hmm. Then Hassan Piker comes in and is like, well, you know, he's a white nationalist. Then Nikki is like, oh, so now we can't even talk to someone or say anything about people in the other party. Then she also said she was invited to the White House. Apparently she wasn't. That's where things stand today. But I do think it was kind of revealing because it just turned instantly into this full national sectarian partisan food fight in the silliest possible way. I was wondering what your thoughts were on this very important and vital subject. Swollen balls, go. Well, I think that... <laughs> Here's me on swollen balls. Firstly, I can't take swollen balls seriously unless they're attached to my body. And then, then I would take them a lot more seriously. Or I suppose if they were immediately in my environment, then I would take them seriously as well if they were perhaps in my, the, my, the forefront of my visual field. But I, in a sense, it kind of just exposes that what we're participating in is a circus. Nicki Minaj is an entertainer and she's as entitled to her opinions as anybody else. And each side tries to mobilize this sort of cultural object of a tweet according to his argument. I saw in my country, like the prime minister and our dude that's like Chris Whitty, he's like the head of that setup. You know, they were like, oh, you know, being all sort of serious about it. And then Boris Johnson, well, I, you know, I don't, my friend, I don't know who Nicki Minaj is and doing all that kind of stuff. You know, and, um, and I feel like, you know, they're trying to advance their arguments like, oh, look, you know, they, they are taking the gamble that the people that they're speaking to will have have certain prejudices and opinions about Nicki Minaj or more mm. likely someone like Nicki Minaj. So they're using it as a weapon to say, oh, look at the kind of people that oppose our way of thinking. They're like hip hop stars and stuff, you know, and then the other side, you know, another side uses it to sort of exemplarize sort of free speech. And in a way, 
where is the integrity? And by integrity, I mean sort of interconnectivity of a whole set of ideas. Where is the sort of uh, <laughs> dignity? Certainly, mm. it's not down the trousers of Nicki Minaj's cousin's mate, nor <laughs> the potential bride that I believe has reneged on the ceremony, possibly because of the swollen gonads, <laughs> which, were, which once upon a time would have been Great celebration for nuptials. <laughs> what kind of crazy world is it that we're living in when an almighty pair of swollen balls doesn't send bride and groom and like swinging down the aisle in merry unison? I don't. I don't know how to make this transition. Didn't think about smooth. that angle, but yeah, really, I don't know how to make this transition smooth, Russell. So I'm just going to dive right into the deep end here. I want to know because okay, let me. I'll start with my my personal story. So when I um, graduated uh, college, I went to. Um, work in the car dealership. I was a car salesman. And long story short, even though I never would have admitted it at the time, I was miserable. And so I was popping all sorts of pills in sight. I would pop some Adderall, pop some Percocet. I drink these drinks called Four Loco, you know, while at work. And those have been pulled from the shelves because they're so dangerous. It's basically like crack cocaine in a can. So that's the life that exactly it really was. (laughs) So that's the life I was leading. But as soon as I, I ended up leaving that eventually, actually put 100% everything I had, put my all into what I do now, and just really took a shot in the dark. Hey, maybe this will take off, maybe it won't, but I want to do political commentary. I've always, I had always done it as a hobby. And I found personally that to the extent that you could call what I had addiction, I don't know if I'd really accept that label, but maybe I was on the borderline of it. The thing that really got me back on track is to have purpose and to have meaning and to get out of bed in the morning and feel like what I did mattered. And so that would be sort of the layman's advice I have for anybody who's struggling right now in terms of how to get out of addiction. I know you've uh, suffered from addiction in your life. What would you say to somebody who's listening who's going through some struggles right now? What would you say is the best thing to do in order to get out of addiction? I would say you free yourself from blame and condemnation. And at the core of your addiction, there is something beautiful. Part of you is calling out, calling out for connection and for meaning, which could be found in multiple ways. And there is support available to you in a variety of 12-step fellowships that can easily be found but not be named particularly by anybody that has an affiliation with them but if you have problems with alcohol there are support groups for alcoholics if you have a problem with narcotics there are support groups for people that have drug problems underlying all these forms of attachment because addiction is just an amplified form of attachment is a yearning for some wholeness for some connection the system that I was taught believes that it is a spiritual malady that we're suffering from, that our addiction is an attempt to resolve feelings of alienation and disconnection that come about as a result of living in a society that fosters those very feelings. You're not mad. There's nothing wrong with you. Even within your addiction and your pain is the seed of something that will save you. There's something in you that's calling out. Our job is to hear the call to respond to the call and to know that if you are able to respond, if you're able to find it in yourself, however difficult it might be initially to reach out a hand, there will be a hand that will take yours. You are not alone. There are higher values. There are people in this world that believe in unity and love and togetherness. There are places you can go. There are methods you can use. Freedom is possible. There is a solution to the problem of addiction. No matter whether 
whether it's expressing itself in you through chemical dependency, food or behavioral addiction, there is a way out. The first thing you have to do is acknowledge that problem. The second thing you have to do is believe it is possible to change. And the third thing you have to do is be willing to accept help. And each one of those steps can be undertaken in alliance, in a collaboration with others. We don't do it alone. We do it together which for me is a fine template for how we can move forward in other areas of our life. For what is this infatuation with materialism, objects, this fetishization of things other than a, a form of shared cultural addiction, a shared obsession with getting things from the outside, even if it's simply your own way. So for anyone suffering with addiction, I would say have the courage to reach out your hand and declare it and you will be heard, you will be met. Why do you think that it is that so many celebrities who seemingly have it all, fame, wealth, beautiful, success, all of that, um, struggle with addiction? I mean, we see so many, sadly, end up dying from an overdose. What do you think that that comes from? Well, what do you reckon it is, Crystal? I think it's a lot of what you just said, that ultimately the pursuit of those things is very empty. So when you've been told by society that, you know, this is the end all be all and you've achieved everything that, you know, the American dream in our case has on offer and you're still empty, that is a deeply painful experience. Yeah, I think it's that as well. And I wouldn't have just said that no matter what you had said. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's... I think. Yeah. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Yeah. Russell, we're really grateful for your time. Um, so fascinating to chat with you. And just tell people where they can find your podcast, where they can check out your YouTube channel, because if you aren't already subscribed, you should definitely do that. Oh, thanks. My YouTube stuff is available for free, of course, on YouTube. It's uh, Russell Brand, my name. And then there's the Awakened Inside channel, which focuses on spiritual stuff. If you want my podcast, you can get it from Luminary. It's called Under the Skin. If you've got Apple, you can get it anywhere in the world. Luminary, it's a platform that's a subscription model. So if you want it, you can get it there. Also, I perform live a lot and I write a lot of books. If you want to come see me, come see me. If you need help, send me an email at help at russellbrand.com. If you want to say hello, hello at russellbrand.com and sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com as well. Thank you very much. It's been lovely speaking to you, Crystal and Kyle, with your satisfying alliteration. That is the uh, lovely Russell Brand, if I don't say so myself. Indeed. Um, so, few thoughts. He, like I told everybody it, when we talked about him versus Candace Owens in the clip on the, on the last show, um, I wasn't originally a fan of him, but that was more about me than him because I was very, you know, as like Mr. You know, no nonsense, new atheist. Re I'm Mr. Reasonable type mm -hmm. stuff. Anybody who gave off like overly hippie-ish vibe. Yeah, you're like, I sort of like, fuck off. Just rationality. Well, it just, yeah. it just, it always struck me as insincere when somebody's mm. like really hippie-ish. Yeah, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is, but that's the point. Not always. There are people who are genuinely like very, you know, open-minded, tolerant, spiritual. And so as soon as I understood that and truly grasped that and really just I had to hear him out as soon as I heard him out for a while, then I was like, oh, this guy's actually really interesting. And the thing that I think he's amazing at, maybe one of the best I've ever seen, is he finds a way to communicate where even if he's expressing an idea that you don't agree with, you don't dislike him. Like, he finds a way to communicate the idea where you're not immediately on guard and you're not mm. immediately playing defense and you're not immediately like, no, 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 let me correct you. And let me. He just f has a way of disarming you 
while he explains his ideology, even if it might be a part of his ideology where I disagree. Yeah. It's also interesting because um, conventional wisdom on YouTube would be that that approach wouldn't really work. Right. No, that's right. That I would the be more... the polar opposite of that. I would be viewed as the polar opposite of the way he communicates because I'm short and I'm punchy. Yeah, he's not. He's long and he's eloquent. You have you're very different stylistically. That's totally true. But um, there is a similar quality there in that I know from your process that when you think through how to present an argument, you're not just thinking about how do I like make the people who already agree with me cheer. You're thinking about how do I persuade somebody who's persuadable? Like, how do I present this in a way yeah, that's going to mm-hmm. be accessible? I think that is a uh, something that you share with him. And um, that quality, again, conventional wisdom would say, wouldn't perform well on YouTube because YouTube, you would think, is all about the taking the hard line, being divisive, being bombastic. And in fact, that content that, that is, does well, yeah, that does, does do, well. do very, very well. So to me, it's really encouraging to see someone who is not like that, thoughtful yeah. and tolerant and nuanced and willing to like hear someone out and grant them a point that that is actually successful. Um, I was thinking about uh, when we talked to Charlie and Ben and they were analyzing Russell's, like his Mm. charisma and why it is that he's so compelling. And, um, you know, it's interesting because they talked about how in these debate bro moments, what usually makes for compelling content is the two people who are just trying to win versus having the conversation is not necessarily rewarded. But Russell is a person who comes in, uh, invites people on to have a debate with, but doesn't take the like debate bro approach and actually tries to be thoughtful and hear people out. And it works. So, well, that's I, I share that's that with him because yeah. they're like every time. So I, I, I haven't done a crazy number of debates, but every time I have done debates, I will put right down, like have cliff notes of facts that are relevant to the discussion and the mm-hmm. debate. Um, but ultimately, yes, I'm there listening. And if somebody makes a good point, I'm immediately like, that's a good point. I agree. It's not like it's weird. You know what I think it is? A lot of people's identities become tied to their ideology sometimes. And they feel like if I concede on this point, I'm unraveling my identity. I think it's that. And I also think that it just comes from the sense of like, I don't want to show any weakness. That too. Right. That's, you know, that's a good they're, point. They're right. worried about. See, I just did it right now. That is a, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> they're worried about here's my particular audience. Here's what I think that their views are. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to represent them. So I can't let them down. So I can't say, you know, Russell, you've got a good point there because they're going to say, oh, you were weak. Why didn't you go after him in this way? Why did you? Never. She would never do that. So that's why, you know, it was really interesting. For me, it was interesting to hear from him about how he thinks about and approaches those conversations because. He's not really going in trying to win the way she's approaching every, and I've debated Candace Owens as well. She's approaching every interaction as like, how do I win? How do I dominate this person? How do I make sure I don't show any weakness whatsoever? It also reminded me of, there was this revelation from Tucker this week that when he's backed into a corner, he'll just lie. He said it. To get himself out of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think, I mean, he's far from, I'm sure, the only one, but that is the ethos with a lot of people is it's like whatever it takes for me to win this moment right now, whether it's moral, whether it's right, whether it's accurate, whether it's fair, that's what I'm going to do right now. Do you think there's an age difference, too, in terms of what 
sells and what like the way people perceive stuff because i feel like there may be the younger somebody is the more likely they are to like the blood sport you know what i mean oh, whereas you get older you get a little more mature uh, and you're like it's i funny don't you say that i was thinking the opposite well so it, uh, well i was also <laughs> i was thinking before i said what i said i thought maybe of saying both the young and the old and like the middle range is the range where they don't necessarily care as much for the blood sport but if you're really young or if you're like a fox news 60 plus viewer you want you want hannity to bash somebody bash somebody's face in if you're 60 plus and you're sitting at the nursing home you want if you're a a, you know a 14 year old gamer you want a gamer who agrees with you ideologically to be like well you're an idiot and here's why you're an idiot you know what i'm saying but if you're somewhere in the middle you work a nine to five you're 36 years old and you're watching a news clip if somebody hits you with a little bit of bullshit you're like i smell bullshit i don't know i sort of feel like the uh Gen Xers and the young boomers are kind of the worst in this regard. And they would be how old? They'd be 60-ish now. The Well, Gen X is like the 40s, plus. 50s. Yeah. Young boomers are, yeah, 60s. Yeah. Um, and you know what I attribute it to is um, we both read that book, Attention Merchants, mm-hmm. Tim Wu, where he talks about how different styles of sort of like propaganda, they lose their value over time. Yeah, that's right. They're them. like waves. They come in waves. Yeah. And I, I see this with my dad, who's elderly, who's like super, I mean, dude is a PhD physicist, brilliant man, but he would get taken in during the Obama era by these like stupid chain emails. Yeah, he's I'm a like, Muslim. What? Yeah. What is going on here? Like, you dude, know? you're a scientist. <laughs> right. You're a scientist. Exactly. Like, how do you not see through this? But so I think it's more that if you're in those older age brackets, you don't as much, you assume people's good intent. Right. So you assume yeah. someone like Candace Owens, and I don't mean to like just pick on her, but that's happening. No, please you go right ahead. About, but, <laughs> um, you assume someone like that, like really genuinely believes what she's saying yeah. and is there for good intent. And so, and you take her rhetoric at face value. Whereas if you're younger, I think you see through what some of the underlying motivations are. You see the game that she's playing. And so maybe you're not as taken in by the rhetoric. That's just a theory. Yeah, well, my age thing is just a theory, too, obviously. Um, that was one of my favorite episodes, I'd say. That was great. Really yeah, interesting. It's, it's definitely on my list of the top episodes. You know, what did you think of him saying that um, he would not, because here's a person who is a celebrity, mm-hmm. could go to all these award shows and fancy whatevers, um, and he said if it was him, he wouldn't go to the Met Gala today, even though he's been to things like that right. in mm-hmm. the past, because his words were those sorts of events make him nervous now. What did you think of that? Um, I'm not surprised that he wouldn't go. I expected that he wouldn't want to go to something like that. His reasoning, I am a little surprised by. I thought his reasoning would be similar to my reasoning, which is like, those things are full of miserable people with no purpose and no meaning, and they're looking under all the wrong rocks to find the, the purpose and the meaning. And it's just hollow, it's vapid, it's debauchery. Like, it's all just every negative hedonistic thing you could think of, which is a false promise to happiness and joy. That's what goes on there. And so I thought he would maybe go more down that line. But the reason why he doesn't is interesting because the reason is he says, hey, man, I was there. So I can't judge these. Who the hell am I to judge these people? I did the same stuff. And so that's why you get the sense, like, you know, I I posed that question to him about there are people on the left who are against the financial elite and the cultural elite. And then there are other people on the left who are against the financial elite but not against the cultural elite. Some of them even like the cultural elite. Some mm-hmm. are agnostic on them. Or Where do you fall that on that wise, spectrum? Yeah. Right, yeah. And, um, you know, his answer was basically more or less, I can't judge anybody because I was there. And so he's sort of, I guess he sort of has hope to break the spell for 
most of those people over there. He clearly believes in the inherent potential goodness in all human beings. And he's 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 and genuinely spiritual and he feels yeah. like, you know, there's there's hope, there's a chance, there's, you know, there he's not essentialist by any stretch of the imagination, which also influences why he probably feels like it's cool to talk to some people who you and I might otherwise look at and be like, that person is a bad actor, you know. Yeah. No, he's a real antidote to nihilism because it's interesting even as he sees you know, certainly in the U.S. context, both parties are sort of thoroughly corrupt and essentially irredeemable. He believes enough in just like the potential of the human spirit to sort of see past that. I, it's funny because I actually think o- over time and ever since I started following his stuff, he's gotten more and more political. Mm. He has sort of come to the place of almost where you are on breaking points. You know what I mean? It's a very it's like your philosophy and your ideology plus spirituality. Yeah. That's like his his deal now, basically. Like when you, if you go to his YouTube channel and you check it out and you read through the things, he's covering a lot of the similar topics. He By thinks the way, about these things in somewhat similar ways. He did cover the Nicki Minaj ball story before we brought it well, up. Well, I so. mean, it's hard to avoid some swollen balls. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just like Russell said, right there in your face. You're like, and we oh. also covered it on Breaking Points. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, I tweeted about it quite there. a bit, you know, so. We're all one. That's, that's right. The, that's the moral we, of the story. We all are interested in some swollen ass balls. <laughs> Find it irresistible or something. Yes. Uh, anyway, it, with that awkward crash landing, um, everybody, if you're not uh, a Substack subscriber, what do they call it on Substack? Is it subscriber, follower? Subscriber. Patron? Subscriber. subscriber? Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're not a Substack subscriber, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Um, so if you go there, pay $5 a month, you get the video of all of the podcasts and you get it a day early. If you don't pay the $5 a month, don't worry, you could still sign up on Substack for free. And the second that it drops as a podcast, you get it like that. Uh, you could also just go to whatever platform you want a day after on Saturday and and find Crystal Kyle and friends. But obviously, massive thank you to everybody who uh, is a Substack subscriber to us because that's the only way that we take funds for the show. We don't take any ad money whatsoever. We're very proud of that fact. Uh, we've been trying to surpass Barry Weiss for about 47 years now, and we're mm-hmm. still lagging far behind very her. Depressing. So. Anyway, that's my way of saying we'd really appreciate it if you pay the $5 and get the video and get it a day early because we want to surpass Barry Weiss and give you guys access to what's going on behind the scenes here. We'll release a special video to our uh, Substack subscribers when that happens. Love you guys. Thanks for watching, and we will see you next week. Bye.